One thing I like to do is to give a long pause before I actually start speaking so that it's more visible to me when I open up the file where to cut. Um, so I'm going to give us a few moments of quiet for me hmm. to... Because uh, you can see on the sound waves in the file, you know, when, yeah, yeah, when yeah. I stop talking. It just makes it way easier. So, all right. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by only looking at one of us on the camera because the other person's uh, video feed isn't working and we're just both looking at me. Uh, I'm your I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, with me on the line from Istanbul, I assume, since you're having tech issues, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Uh, I think it's appropriate uh, that we're both looking at you. Uh, it's an appropriate yeah. reflection of the degree of navel-gazing and introspection that we're occasionally uh, right. well, sub subject to on this show. In Trump's D.C., narcissism is the new normal. Yeah. Don't normalize this, Charles. I would prefer not to normalize it, but there's not a whole lot we can do about that because yeah. we're all living in this horrible nightmare that we can't escape from. And if I were running for president in 2020, I would, you know, I don't know that I would make it my campaign's main slogan, but certainly one of my recurring slogans would be, let the nightmare end. <laughs> Just people, we can go back to our lives. Wouldn't it be great to go back to an era when you didn't have to check Twitter every morning to see what insane thing the president said, what war, trade, political or actual he started with somebody? Wouldn't it be so nice, so, so nice to just forget about who the president even is until a major bill comes around? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that actually um, makes me wonder now to what extent people will have developed a habit of checking political news, who people who, would, who were not otherwise um, so interested in political stories, political news, um, who were radicalized by Trump, like how many of them will sort of, you know, beat their sword into a plowshare after, however, you know, however Trump, you know, leaves, um, whenever, whenever this period ends, um, will it end because they're able to turn, you know, to not pay attention anymore or will they be radicalized and will that, practice of checking the news and, oh my God, what happened now? You know, will that <clears throat> um, color what happens after Trump himself and you know constitute part of what we later come to think of as, you know, the Trump era in politics? Right. I mean, that's, it's an interesting... But there are people who will be, you know, <clears throat> assuming he lasts the whole four years, we will have basically been dealing with him as a major political figure tweeting nonsense all the time from 2015 until 20 the start of 2021 which means we'll have had you know a six-year period of this just being what we deal with all the time which means that there will be 18 year olds people voting for the first time at the end of 2020 who, since they were 12, in other words, their entire period of political consciousness, have only known the president or the person who's you know, running for president as a serious contender to be someone who spews nonsense all the time right. that you can't escape. And God forbid if he lasts eight years, right. what that kind of memory will be like for people voting. Although, yeah, although to some extent um, that could be a positive thing because um, I don't know if you saw this quip from, I think it was uh, David Hogg of this, you know, the Parkland survivors, um, <clears throat> who said that for his generation, it has gotten to the point where politics, watching politics is like watching your aged parent attempt to send oh. an SMS. <laughs> and, you know, eventually the parent is like, God, I don't know how to get, I don't know what to hang it, you know. Like, how do you do this thing again? What do I open on this? And eventually the kid just says, you know, just give it to me. Just give it to me and I'll do it. And that's that's the stage that we've reached that's in good, our that's a good, history of our republic. 
that's a good analogy. I mean, yeah, uh, I found it very compelling in certain ways, and um, actually deeply chilling in others because obviously you don't get to say to other people, you know, just give me your democracy. Your, just give me your democracy. Yeah, that's that's but, very much an authoritarian move. It's a, it's a very much an authoritarian sentiment. If you if your idea is you know they can't handle it, so you just take it, but. You know, to the extent that young people so far have been like, well, they've got their hands on it, so I'm not even going to bother trying to take, gra you know, to to grasp my share. Um, you know, to the extent that that's the baseline that we've been dealing with, then, you know, kids trying to grab it for themselves is maybe a good start. It just depends on, obviously, it depends on someone, someone's the context and where it where it ends up. Right. Um, but, you know, to the extent that Trump is radicalizing younger people who are less obsessed with this, you know, with these deeply flawed uh, visions of the past and are thinking more clearly about, um, you know, about the future that they will be living in, then like, that's exactly what our democracy needs. Right. I was, of course, here in D.C. for the march, not for the march, but I was here in D.C. and the march was occurring yesterday. I was, um, you know, elsewhere, not uh, at the Capitol or at the march, but I passed by the Capitol on my way home shortly after it was um, largely done, but not completely. And boy, there were a lot of people just, you know, stragglers just walking away afterwards, uh, more mm -hmm. than I usually see for, I mean, by far more than I usually see for any random um, form of protest. Um, it seemed comparable to the Women's March last year, which was also quite large. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the reporting about scientifically derived estimates of the you know the numbers, but based on the uh, even more scientific than scientific polling of you know my looking at Instagram and and Facebook and Twitter, um, it seemed like. People, people, I'll put it this way. People I did not expect to go out um, were out with their kids and, right. or their, you know, or their, um, you know, their parents or whatever. So that was, that was, that was impressive. Yes. So I, wouldn't, I would be, I would be, I would not be surprised if it were on the same level as the Women's March or even more people. Well, for somewhat, well, the Women's March was also worse weather. I mean, it's been a little cold here lately, but it was... Not it wasn't raining, but it was one of those days where you're thinking it'll rain at any moment, um, yeah. just as it had been for the inauguration. Despite Trump's claims that the rain stopped when he started speaking, right? Uh, which That's is funny because we normally we always talk about the weather when we first uh, start the show, right? It's part of my canned lines. I, I very intentionally just moved on. Oh yeah, but uh, but here we are back with the weather <laughs> because there are no there are no tangents. But yeah, uh, yeah well, yeah, with with the with the inauguration itself, the town did not feel particularly crowded in any way, shape, or form. I mean, that's what was going on, but it was kind of a rainy, dreary day, and most of the local inhabitants were just miserable. Uh, with the Women's March, it was fairly... Um, yeah, there was there were people everywhere. With this march yesterday, I was going somewhere, and people had said, you know, be warned that the metros could be quite full because of this protest going on. But I... Um, I had left before it really got underway, so the metro mm. wasn't all that full yet. But if anything, it seemed like they were running um, a weekday schedule rather than a weekend schedule because of the protest, and that just meant I got where I was going faster. So that's great. You know, yeah. kudos to you, protesters. You made my day. <laughs> all right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And actually, you know, it's interesting. I had been thinking about this generational question the other day in the context of um, some polling that's come out in Turkey about attitudes among young Turks. Um, well, yes. Yeah, I was just... A, a ringing <laughs> phrase. But, yeah, um, yes. Younger Turks, Turks aged, let's say, you know, 18 to 24, um, about religion. And um, surprising perhaps to some, unsurprising to others, despite the fact that Erdogan and his very 
pious party has been in control of all the levers of power for, uh, you know, 18 years to some extent, not all the levers, they've, they've been in control, but they've had complete unfettered total dominance, uh, let's say for, to the extent that that's, that is ever achieved in politics, uh, for the last, let's say five years. Um, and they've been building mosques, they've been building school, you know, where people want high schools, they build mosques and, uh, even when they do build a high school, often it's to build a high school for religious instruction. And so people who are secularly minded obviously find this very troubling, um, not least because they fear that the result will be a rising generation of, um, you know, religiously conservative, anti-secular uh, Turks. And of course, that's exactly what the ruling party wants, and they've said as much, they want to raise a pious generation, the golden generation, as they refer to it. Um, but, you know, according to certain data, they come out in, you know, more or less, um, you know, convincing, uh, sort of, uh, you know, quantitatively rigorous forms, but according to a lot of different data, um, this rising generation is much less religious than their forebears. Uh, or they're more skeptical of the imposition of religion by by the society. And, um, you know, it's interesting to compare this way that, um, you know, in Turkey you have this older generation with its hand very firmly on the levers of power, and the demographics of the country are such that um, it's very difficult to imagine that support for the ruling government uh, fading sufficiently to oust Erdogan for a number of reasons, but I'll just put it that way for now. Right. Um, you know, but the, um, you know, but the future certainly appears to offer hope for the people who have been disappointed and, and frightened by uh, the direction of the current government in part because you have these kids who at some point will say, you know, you're not doing it right. Just give it to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it, it's easy to be romantic and utopian about, um, you know, about the rising generation, the youth, but, um, yeah, maybe we can talk about that in another show, the different, the different possibilities. But at this point, um, you know, there's a, there's at least a, a source of a potential, um, uh, hope both in America and right. and Turkey from, from the youth. Well, kids are always going to do the opposite of what their elders want them to do. So if you wanted to raise a pious generation, the obvious thing to do would be to be Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, it, it, oh, it almost man. makes you wonder what this is going to do to the morality of the upcoming generation. That's, that is amazing. That's an amazing thought. And I, I certainly... I actually agree with you in the context of the kind of uh, the so-called American civic religion, but it would it would actually be it would be a supreme irony if Donald Trump led to more people going to church, you know, more more religiosity. That would be hysterically funny. Well, I do think that um, he would be likely to lead fewer people to go to church because of the way the evangelicals have completely supplicated themselves um they're, they're just they, they I, of all of the groups that have supported trump aside from maybe congressional republicans they come off the worst from all of this and yeah i don't think there's any i mean i think they are much worse than, much much worse i it's republicans in you know positions of political power because um <laughs> you know republican politicians are by definition uh, engaged in the pursuit of power as their primary goal. Um, that's what politicians do qua politician, but, you know, qua like religious person or qua religious leader, you know, your goal should be pursuing, you know, righteousness, pursuing the divine. And obviously, you know, Trump is uh, pretty, pretty antithetical to that. Although, right. um, God works in mysterious ways and empowers 
unrighteous men for uh, you know for righteous reasons but um yeah we were we were going to talk we this is actually a fairly good entree to what we had uh, earlier thought about discussing today about uh, the character of people in public positions and the extent to which that to you know the extent to which their character prepares them for leadership or effective service uh, or would offer some barrier to their effectively discharging the right. duties of their position. Your sound just got a little worse. Did you move away from your microphone? No, I, I didn't do anything different. Is it still, is there still a problem? Um, it's not a problem. It just, your, your sound quality is down. Okay. Interesting. Um, but we'll uh, we'll just carry on because we have the character to triumph over adversity. <laughs> it it probably is something to do with the connection. Um, Likely so, me, so. Yeah. As you let struggle me, under Erdogan's thumb. As I struggle under Erdogan's thumb. Yeah. Uh, let me know if it gets if it gets significantly worse, and we can try to figure a workaround and maybe edit it out. Of <laughs> maybe edit. I'm not going to edit it. <laughs> okay. I like our audience know how the sausage is made. That's very important to me. Mm. Anyway, yes, um, I agree that it's it's a useful segue to the topic that we were planning on discussing today, which has to do with the concept of character and whether that is something we should be prioritizing higher in our politicians. Uh, and I've, I've been thinking this in part because um, the conventional view of what's wrong with politicians, the one that voters seem to have, uh, which I regard as inaccurate, is that um, politi our politics don't work because the people that we put in power just don't want to do the things that they want done. You know, that they, oh, they'd rather take money from this person and not do the thing that would benefit all of us. So what we have to do is elect a person who's already rich and won't feel a need to self-enrich which of course is ridiculous because as we, if this administration has proven anything, it's that rich people will con you just as much, if not more, and they've been demonstrating a lot more of it um, than other people. I mean, when you look at some of the scandals with their incredibly wealthy cabinet members doing absolutely absurd things um, to bilk the taxpayer for every little bit, plus Trump's constant self-dealing while in office to an extent that is far more troubling than oh, they're, they're giving a few speeches here and there after they leave office. I mean, it's... Right, well, they're, they're, these people are, are providing examples of the way in which, you know, as you said, precisely the opposite of how they sell themselves. I'm so rich, I don't need to be corrupt. Precisely the opposite of that, we see examples of how you got rich because you are corrupt. Yeah, right. I mean, or in some cases, they started it's not, rich. That's not and, you know. universally true of all rich people in the world. Um, but part of this current uh, moment that we're in, I think, where we are, in part for example, is the effort to better understand and communicate facts about the political economy of Putin's Russia. And the kind of plutocracy and oligarchy, uh, kleptocracy that um, you know that exists there. The more closely we study that, in order to come up with some understanding of whether and how that you know interacted with the Trump campaign uh, or the Trump organization before he was running for office. Uh, we start to see things that maybe make us think more sharply about our own society and the way that, you know, the Kushners uh, got rich and, um, you know, and the way Trump himself, uh, you know, preserved the wealth that he inherited. So, um, yeah, I think uh, on the one hand, you have this idea that of how they sell them, uh, you know, this idea that you just mentioned of, Oh, uh, obviously rich people are the most ethical because they have no reasons to be unethical because they're rich. Like that, that idea is an extreme sort of absurdly optimistic, naive, uh, 
maybe a naively trusting view of the rich. And, um, you know, the idea that every rich person is only rich because of corruption and government favor and, you know, the illegitimate uh, structure of our society, you know, that would be a, an extreme in the other direction. Uh, but I think it's, it's probably healthy for our society to, um, you know, see Trump making that claim for a number of people to have been deceived by that claim in 2016. And now, you know, a great deal more skepticism about what rich people do to get rich and stay rich uh, seems to be. Well, you know whose opinion about that hasn't changed is Donald Trump's. <laughs> he is one of those people where it's clear that he thinks this is what everybody does. This is just what you do, is to violate a lot of these norms and do blatant self-promotion. I mean, right. we, we've heard about these ethics complaints against um, Kellyanne Conway for you know plugging Trump's and his daughter's stuff while she's in her official capacity. And I mean, it's kind of laughable because we all like Trump openly said when he was running for president that he was going to be the first person to turn a profit on the presidency. Right. Or he yeah, said he was going to turn a profit from running for president. I guess you could technically argue that's a slightly different remark, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember those specific quotes, but I don't, I don't doubt that he would have said something like that. Right. Um, he thinks you're chumps if you don't break the rules. Like, right. To him, yeah, the entire about that, which is ironic because it, it's completely contradictory to the other point, right? That um, you know, he both says, um, "I'm rich, so I can fight for you because I don't need to fight for myself and my own wealth." But then on the other hand, he goes, he says, "You know, anybody who claims to be altruistic and moral and ethical is a chump," and so you know. These, you know, holier-than-thou Boy Scouts in the FBI are obviously corrupt. You know, everybody's obviously corrupt. So don't bother looking for people who aren't corrupt, right? He says these things that are obviously, you know, newsflash. Trump says inconsistent things. Um, but in this case, it's a, it's a telling inconsistency that bears repeating, I think. Yes, I agree. Which, yes, so that made me want to sort of discuss, because what we've seen in this administration is people who are, for a lot of their positions, both incompetent and of poor character. Um, but I'm curious to think now, you know, how well would it work if we started electing people based on character and not as much based on uh, either whether we agree with them completely politically or um, whether in some abstract sense we consider them to be smarter or less smart than somebody else because um we when we when we sort of pause and look back at who are the people that we elect i don't really think in my view there's much of a running thread in terms of characteristics we choose other than charisma that really seems to be the only criterion we're actually using and what I've been looking at, you mentioned the people in the FBI. I have come from a lot of this stuff with a huge respect for, you know, Bob Mueller and James Comey and Andrew McCabe, people who have made their mistakes. As you said, James Comey got himself in trouble because the the whole point of him having to write that last second letter that Nate Silver has said over and over again, and he was, you know, closest to being correct of the people who are analyzing all of the polls. He said, look, I looked at the data, and that letter is why Trump won the election, that letter right before the election. But Comey, in a certain sense, had put himself in a corner because of an error he had made earlier when he gave that, um, when he gave that speech saying, okay, we're not going to prosecute her, and she was careless, da, da 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 And he also had promised Congress that if there were any updates, he would let them know. Well, then, if an update happens, he had to let them know. Uh, so it's a weird combination of... I don't know, um, some errors that he made, especially in the sense that he had to send that letter. Like, if you think about it, on the one hand... Well, the, I mean, the, I think the issue here, the reason we're, you know, getting into some unclear territory is that, um, you know, a word like character, we just have to step back and ask, what do we mean by asking a question of someone's character? You know? Right. How do we know? And part of the issue with um, with McCabe, you know, this uh, one of the issues that has arisen as a result of the reporting about how McCabe has been treated, is that he 
was held as an FBI agent to an extremely high professional standard. Um, you know, this, this question of, you know, he's not responding with, with candor. candor. You know, this is something that if that same standard had been held to, say, Jeff Sessions, <laughs> who said, right. I don't recall, right? Like, the thing that, you know, the standard that is held to McCabe was that if you say something like, I don't recall, then you're, you know, you're in violation of the standard because it's your job to recall with precision, you know, and to share completely and fully in a way that cannot be misunderstood by a reasonable person. Not, you know, oh, little mistakes like I forgot, you know, 90% of the foreign investors that I deal with, like, uh, you know, um, like Kushner or um, under oath saying, you know, I don't recall this thing that, like, clearly you would recall if you're not mentally ill. Um, you know, the standard that McCabe is held to, but that, but that's a professional standard, right? So what? So does so is that what we're talking about when we talk about character? Um, you know, the adherence to whatever professional standard you operate under at you know qua professional, you know, as a, as a, as a, you know, what's your professional standard as a doctor? What's your professional standard as a, um, you know, as an FBI agent? What's your professional standard as a journalist? I mean, maybe that's what we should mean by character is kind of a, um, you know, contextualized in that way. Hmm. Um, well, that's an interesting you know, point. Or, because I mean, we I'll don't, open to other examples, but we yeah. don't have a professional standard for politicians the way that we do with doctors and lawyers and police officers. Right. We have, it's funny because when I was in law school and studying a lot of, you know, you're taking professional responsibility courses. And I said, you know, lawyers have to be pretty ethical on a lot of these things. And people of course laugh at you because the, <laughs> the image is lawyers have no ethics and are just sleazy, awful people. Right. And this probably comes through because the lawyers who get the biggest names for themselves, you know, can easily be awful, sloppy people. But, you know, what is Bob Mueller doing? What is Bob Mueller's team doing? How are they comporting themselves? You look at at them and one of the strange things you notice is we don't seem to be having any leaks from Mueller's team. Right. A bunch of lawyers, you know, supposedly these these awful, unethical people. And we don't have any leaks from them. When we find out about anything happening, it's because of the person that they subpoena. And right. you know, leaks from the other side, essentially. Yeah. And so for politicians, we have a bunch of concepts that we think are valuable in them. We talked about this in our episode on political character. But we don't have a professional standard for, okay, there's a bill where your constituents clearly want this outcome. Let's let's take the, the gun march as an example. We don't have a professional standard for what you're supposed to do when you're a congressman and someone comes to you and says, all of these polls show that 60% of NRA members want these expanded background checks. And so you, you at that point would be thinking, okay, well then, uh, you know, it's vast majorities of people who want these changes, you know, not these massive overhauls, not the confiscation of guns, but there are some changes we can make that we know have very broad support. And in your individual judgment, you probably don't even think it's going to be a particularly big problem. And yet what we continually see are people dodging away from making those relatively minor improvements. And in a sense, we intuitively feel that that must be because of a lack of character because we we think that politicians doing what it takes to get them reelected is bad character. Yet with other professions, if you are a cop or a lawyer or a doctor, something that gets you professionally disciplined or makes you lose your job is considered to be you acting with poor character. Politics is one of the only areas where acting with good character causes you to be disciplined and lose your job. Um, yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, I think your framing of this is, um, I don't know. I think, I think, I think your framing of this is again, just showing that character 
is an amorphous concept because, you know, if you're talking about taking a stand when it would hurt you, um, you know, taking a stand for what is right, well, if, you know, 80% of the likely primary voters in your district think that what is right is for you to take a stand against the mob who wants to confiscate all your guns and the background checks are just the sharp part of the wedge uh, leading to confiscation, then, you know, they think character is standing against um, the masses. And there's this, you know, there's a whole political rhetoric uh, built up around that, right? Like being the, um, you know, the saucer that cools the heated passions, all that stuff. You know, this is a republic, not a democracy. Right. Or if you're Edmund um, Burke, you're talking about how you owe your constituents your, you know, you owe your constituents your own judgment. You don't owe them to just automatically do whatever they say. You owe them. Right, but I'm, but I'm you're thinking about, about it. You know, in a, it, just because of the structure of our system, uh, for many of these elected officials, um, in order to continue serving at all, they have to get past the primary. And um, so, you know, they're still, they're, I mean, they may be, in, you know, they may still think of it as responding to highly motivated members of their own constituencies and doing what the, what that constituent wants uh, rather than, you know, standing up to the constituent. Of course, it would potentially mean standing up to other constituents. Um, but anyway, the point, the point I'm making is like a character, it's like, are we talking about the willingness to stick to a principle to say, you know, to oppose people who can hurt you? Um, I mean, that's the sort of the way that you put the, the example before and yeah with politicians it's um it's a very it's a very ambiguous way of or you know the concept is ambiguous because um you have to do what a majority of your constituents think they want you to do or else you're not going to be a politician anymore um and so it, it could be a sign of character to uh, give the people what they want, or it could be a sign of character to resist the people. And the question is just, and it's going to be in the eye of the beholder, whether it turns out one way or the other. Um, but it's an interesting question to think about professional standards for politicians, because um, it's, it's part of this struggle that we're having with, or it, it tees into, I think, the struggle we're having with uh, the concept of the elite. And um, politicians should be accountable, but to the extent that they're accountable to whatever people happen to be thinking at a particular moment, as opposed to um, the rules that have arisen over time and been reviewed through the sort of collected wisdom of a community for, you know, since however long, uh, and accrued legitimacy over time like that. Um, you know, politicians are, are caught, you know, would be caught between those two horns if there were to be some kind of effort to say, you know, these are the professional standards you must have as a politician. You know, you can't do this, you must do that. Well, it's like, well, if the people want me to do X, Y, Z right now, then professional standards be damned. They're anti-democratic. Um, right. Yeah, and I think... That's, uh, that's an interesting yeah. point because it, it reminds me of some stuff um, in terms of legal ethics where in our professional responsibility class, we sort of read a little bit about the history of some of the the canon of ethics that... Um, started to govern govern lawyers in the U.S. and the or so a lot a lot of lawyer ethics rules involve um, marketing and mm -hmm. it's it, it and they seem really kind of weird and arbitrary and they don't seem to make a lot of sense. Why is this the big ethics rule that you can't you know promote this this way? You can't run this kind of ad and they're because they're largely not about honesty even. And, you know, honesty in the advertisement or honesty in the referral. 
And, uh, you know, eventually you sort of you read that, well, part of it is because a lot of the canon of ethics was shaped um, early on because it was an entrenched incumbent group of lawyers trying to prevent other people from being able to get into the market and make a name for themselves. Yeah. And so what is called ethics or professional responsibility in some of the some of those instances related some of the marketing instances is really just, you know, rank protectionism. Right. There, there, it is it has nothing to do with the entire concept of ethics at all. And that's how I feel as well about some of the things that we um, discuss as moral issues, uh, particularly the the a lot of the evangelicals who would be supporting Trump now, which is a bizarre phenomenon if you took them at their word on everything they had said and ignored everything they'd done over the last 20 years. Um, but uh, when they when they talk about morality, they talk a lot about, you know, not being homosexual, which to me is such a strange thing because homosexuality seems so tangential to the to the the basic concept of morality, much in the way that some of those advertising restrictions were tangential to the entire concept of ethics. I think homosexuality is ta is tangential to the concept of uh, morality because it doesn't really touch on there's they don't really bother to have an explanation other than well there's this line in the bible that says it's bad and intuitively i don't like it which i don't consider a strong basis for ethics when ethics is something that people have spent thousands of years debating at length yeah well i mean there's a concept um you know there's a there's a there's an intellectual movement called islamic modernism that attempted to reinterpret the texts in a way that would result in an understanding of the spirit of the texts, so to say, mm -hmm. you know, what Muhammad did when he said that four women would be used to have equal weight to the, you know, the witnesses, um, the testimony of, of women would basically be at like a one fourth ratio with the testimony of men that you could have four women that could serve in court to testify in a way that would be equivalent to one man, you know, on its face, that may seem misogynistic, but compared to the practice of the time in which right. women were not allowed to testify at all, it was progressing right. towards the emancipation of women. And obviously, there were, you know, many other examples of that that you could give. Right. I remember uh, hearing it yeah, about putting, the one where they get half the inheritance war. of the men, and they exactly. usually get zero of the inheritance of the men. Right, right. And talking about war, you know, isn't to say everybody should constantly be engaged in war, it's to limit the practice of war and put rules on it and civilize it. And you know, if we think about it in this way, we can see you know, Islam as a religion moving in a spirit that we can continue in this, you know, in our current day and age as good Muslims by doing X, Y, Z things. And you know, the, it was it's an attempt to. Um, interpret the substantive guidelines in a way that gives a meta-analytical understanding of uh, the rules. And, you know, it's something like that, I would say the equivalent to what you were just saying is like, you know, what are, what are the prescriptions about homosexuality actually about to the extent that they could be about anything, you know, meaningful? They would be prescriptions against um, sex outside of marriage, you know, sex with uh, sort of, I mean, I hate even giving it the, this credit, but I mean, as you said, there are, subs there are substantive guidelines that were written down thousands of years ago that obviously, to me, have nothing to do with being a decent person on their face the only connection they could possibly have to being a decent person in this day and age would be something like, you know, a prescription against um, sort of an infinite number of sexual partners outside of a kind of a sexual relationship sanctioned by society. But obviously, you know, society, and I've already made this argument on, on this show, you know, that if, a show on, you know, I've already made this argument uh, with you before that, um, you know, if, if the society is actually 
interested in, um, you know, people having long-term loving intimate relationships as opposed to lots of short-term uh, sexual relationships that aren't emotionally supportive and that, are, that don't involve, us, you know, the, the, the members of a community coming together to sanction and support uh, the creation of sort of a new unit where there used to be two people, then just let gay people get married. <laughs> you know, problem solved. If you're if you're interested in the in the values as opposed to these kind of specific substantive uh, guidelines, if you're interested in the values behind those guidelines, then it's very easy to solve that problem. You just have right. to get past the um, you know the ick factor that was the that the previous generations had drilled into them by their own societies. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, bringing it back to professions, um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a connection. It's obviously different, you know, talking about, talking about Deuteronomy. It's some of the, some of those prescriptions of Deuteronomy were probably exactly the same as what you were saying about lawyers advertising their services in certain ways. You know, some of the, some of the issues in Deuteronomy probably were more about um, a kind of economic system than they were about anything else. But then others were, are probably best explained by, you know, non-economic factors. Um, but either way, you know, here we are now. And I think it is uh, I imagine anyone listening to the show would, would agree. Um, and here I am using the word show again. But I, you know, I think anyone who, who found their way to to our discussions would agree that um, the extent to which codes of behavior matter um, is precisely the extent to which those codes line up with a um, a fundamental abstract principle and reinforce and support that principle as opposed to um, just being something to adhere to because someone told you to adhere to it. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, but that's the problem because that's the unbearable lightness of being. If, if you know, if you start asking the question of, okay, like, why was this rule written? What does this rule actually do? What's the value that it serves? You, know, you can spend your entire life asking that question and never get any satisfaction out of anything because you're just constantly rebelling. Um, whereas a lot, I mean, whereas it's obviously the case that a lot of people get satisfaction from from adhering to comfortable rules that they feel make sense and work and work for the people around them and um, and connect them to the past. You know, that's obviously satisfying for, you know, for a lot of people around, you know, both in America and, and around the world. So. Although to some extent, a lot of those we would say, oh, well, this, this was working um, with regards to especially some of their uh, um, efforts to bar homosexuality, it seemed to be working because they didn't know how many people around them were gay and suffering because of it. Yeah, and that, that's part of yeah, it's a huge part of the problem is you know working for whom? Right, working for the people and, in power. That's well, working for the people in power who are. I mean, it's working for people who are benefiting from it. Working for people who weren't suffering from it. You know, and then the real, the question is, how do you start thinking about the people? You know, for whom it's for whom that rule is is imposing costs, and sometimes the costs are very clear. Like um, obviously, anything around, around race or a lot of the stuff around uh, gender or sexuality. Um, you know, the rules of the past in, in regards to to those um, categories. But then others, you know, the costs are much more abstract and less easy to get. You know, less easy to rally around, like what you were saying about the rule, you know, the costs imposed by um, 
restriction on, you know, lawyers advertising their services. Um, you know, how many people didn't know their rights because they were in underserved communities that, you know, the white shoe firms of the past didn't bother serving and didn't want to allow other upstart lawyers to, you know, to, to serve. I mean, I'm, I'm inventing that scenario out of a kind of loose interpretation of what you said, but. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it, I mean, it's actually some of the questions that we dealt with the hypotheticals in class were actually much worse than that in the sense that they're saying, okay, here, imagine the situation where someone who is an immigrant who does not speak English is at a courthouse and they know they're there for something and they're kind of, they're in trouble. And they don't know exactly what, and a lawyer comes up to them who speaks Spanish and is able to talk to them and, you know, gives them a business card and says, you know, you should hire me or something like that. You know, is that a violation of the rules? And I don't remember the exact hypothetical we had and exactly how it played out. But the fact that it was a question we even had to ask was kind of insane. Yeah, although sometimes those, you know, sometimes those seemingly insane, seemingly, you know, wildly anti-democratic right. rules are actually... Um, Right, they can serve a purpose. There could be there could, there could be people purpose, who could but, take advantage of you there. I mean, not only can serve a purpose, but um, you know, but actually represent the exercise of sovereignty in a community where that you know, what does sovereignty mean? But the ability of a people to bind itself to a certain course of action. You know, that's what the law is in a in a in a you know, somewhat democratic society. Um, and I mean, you know, a very interesting example of this was this uh, case that I read a, a you know, article about, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this topic, but interesting recent article about, um, you know, about demographics in India and the switch from the uh, federal allocations of electoral weight and um, government sort of social security support based on census information and the fact that um, up until very recently, the federal government in India was using the 1971 census which seems completely absurd until, you know, you ask the question, okay, why might they have been using only the 1971 census? Well, again, you know, according to the article, it's because um, that, you know, during the 70s, the uh, Indian federal government faced the challenge of um, attempting to promote uh, – family planning throughout India. And the way that they did that, um, because it's a relatively decentralized system, at least compared to others, uh, was to say that all the various Indian states would have their own, would have a fair amount of free reign in developing policies to limit their population growth. But because any state that limited its population growth relative to other states would then potentially suffer in the allocation of electoral weight and resources from the center. They said, in order to promote you to actually pursue this goal that will be better for everyone, we'll freeze the allocations based on the current census. So the will of the people to pursue a national interest of the country required a step, I mean, there may have been better ways of doing it, but I mean, this was the step that they, that they chose and it actually made perfect sense, but it required this step that, you know, now, um, you know, 47 years later is, uh, you know, sort of on its face absurd, but actually makes perfect sense. And the, um, you know, the sort of correction of what may appear to be this glaring error is, in, is itself 
a failure to properly incentivize um, the society to pursue a goal that it had set for itself. You know, so <laughs> these questions are very complicated, and I guess uh, the only way I can tie this into our earlier conversation is to say that um, character in terms of political leaders interacting with the demands of a wildly uh, mercurial populace, you know, are, are to some extent in the eye of the beholder. Right. And this is, I mean, this is not the first time we have tried to discuss character and found ourselves somewhat stymied by the difficulty of the, of the concept. If it were easy to lay out rules of character and how we should behave, you know, then there wouldn't be quite as much of a job for ethicists. Um, and there wouldn't be quite as many ongoing debates about how we want some of our politicians to act. Yeah. And I guess that you know, could be, uh, an argument for the use of the term, you know, not, not, not the use, but the importance of the term. But if the term were, uh, were not difficult to define, then that means it's non-controversial and therefore kind of pointless to talk about. Whereas the simple fact, you know, I mean, earlier on, I was kind of getting frustrated because it's like, okay, how do we pin this down to, to define what it is, what we're talking about? Uh, but, you know, conversely, it might be precisely the fact that we cannot easily pin it down that hints at the fact that it's an important thing to continue to discuss. Right. And there's a part of me that sometimes just wonders if when we're the example we started with, where we're talking about Mueller and, and, and Trump, we've discussed before more about Mueller's life and what makes him sort of awe-inspiring in terms of how he has lived it and the punctilious nature that he generally has had for things. He seems like this quintessential follow the rules and um, and just he seems like a man of good character. We can't necessarily explain how or why, but he seems like a man of good character. And Trump is just sort of the worst character at every um, opportunity. And when you've seen their interactions, you can sort of guess about some of it there really hasn't been self-promotion from the Mueller people they're not using it as like oh look rescuing the president let's go on you know cnn every day and get a bunch of publicity for that and do all of these other things whereas yeah. trump's like how is trump's legal team behaving compared with Mueller's? you know there's a distinction right there in terms of who's talking to the press constantly and self-promoting and, and all of that right well i'm like you know uh, like Scaramucci, for right. example. But this is a guy who should be, I mean, he, he should be a household name for incompetence and stupidity and, you know, and just crass um, just violation of, of you know, meaningful standards. Um, but because he's a clown and he knew that he had his shot to capitalize on his, uh, his sort of ill-gained renown, he took this moment that you know, should have, or he has continued to take this, you know, this opportunity to kind of um, just get his, just continue to, to gain benefits from, uh, from just being known, you know, from being, from becoming a reality star in the new TV show of American government. And, um, yeah, so that, like, when you contrast that with people who have real skills, real professions, um, who are doing something very important and just continuing to get on with the job. I mean, this is, it goes back to Steve Skoronek and right. the uh, Brownlee report, you know, these are servants to the, in this case, not servants to the president, you know, the, the, the famous phrase from Brownlee Report, if I'm remembering it correctly, was the president needs um, men with a um, uh, passion for anonymity. Right. I believe is the phrase. And obviously times, you know, to the extent that he said men as opposed to um, 
employees or certain, you know, civil servants or whatever it was, you know, time, times have, have changed on that score. But you know, the passion for anonymity certainly does. And these people were working for Mueller, um, you know, despite having traits that would, in a, in a decent society, you know, hold them up for renown and praise, they are uh, refusing that. Whereas these people who are on the on the other side of the equation, you know, only known because of their conspicuous failures, uh, you know, are holding up those holding up that infamy as a source of uh, enrichment. And it's just this is crazy. Right. And I mean, you know, it starts at the top. That's what the yeah. guy on top is right. doing. That, exactly. That's that's how he got to where he is. That's how we all got to where we are. And yeah. Yeah. And so, so as a result, we spent the, yeah. we spent an hour trying to define character and never got to our actual question. We'll have to leave that for some future date. Yeah, we'll have to leave that for the uh, you know for the Parkland kids who have been so radicalized by Trump's lack of character that hopefully we can all you know uh, just rely on this generational uh, dialectic to birth in them the character that we do not see in Trump. I mean, these things do seem to go in, you know, part of the reason things go in cycles is that you're often reacting against whatever the current problem is. Uh, right. We saw with, you know, George W. Bush. So we had Bill Clinton where people were just uh, so annoyed with the, you know, the sleeping around and the, the sort of weird personal scandals that they elect George W. Bush, who's this more, you know, chummy guy that, Certainly, no. I don't think anybody has ever accused him of having an affair or those things in his personal life. And while his administration had its number of scandals, they weren't really related to him personally doing, you know, just awful shady things for himself. But he was this, you know, shoot first and ask or start a war and ask questions later kind of guy. And so right. we reacted against that by putting in Obama, who, instead of being the chummy down to earth guy with a seemingly normal in level of intellect, was instead, you know, professorial and, you know, spoke with and, and um, would, you know, was waiting to, you know, he was always reserving judgment on everything. He was, you know, much more uh, deliberate in all of his actions. And then people got frustrated with that. So they went for the polar opposite, which was a blustering blowhard who, you know, just just doesn't ever think and just acts all the time without any filter at all. And this implies that we're likely to overreact next to somebody who is the opposite of Trump. And boy, I would love to see that. Sounds like Hillary Clinton's coming back. <laughs> oh God, don't just don't. Uh, well, no, that, that happy note, perhaps uh, I can't even do a sign off now. Like you just destroyed, yeah. you just crushed my spirit. I loved Hillary Clinton so much for so long and wanted her to be president for so long, but it's over. We have yeah. to let it go. No, I, I agree. I, I totally agree with that. I know. I, I know I you're joking. People, I do think the I, I do think the whole concept of the you know this crop of uh, articles you know have come up that are just sort of dragging her out into the limelight to say you should go home and no one should talk about you anymore. I find that bizarre and right. I mean, it's part of the same sickness that that. Um, you know, sort of the same. It's a pretty nasty <laughs> metaphor that we're right. building in my head just then. But anyway, this the same sickness that produced Trump. Um, but that being said, I also, you know, again, I strongly believe um, in a democracy, no one is irreplaceable. And in the kind of system we have, um, you know, you get up, you take your shot, and then you should... Um, you know, unless unless there's really really no one to stand up and do a better job, you know, you should uh, retire to let your you know. You, you heard it here first, folks. David hates Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> yeah. And William Jennings Bryant and Nancy Pelosi and. Uh, well, I'm God thinking of anybody who actually got the party's nomination twice. Okay. Because yeah. that seems well, that's we, sort of the rule. Like I, you're I, allowed I, to run for the nomination multiple times, but you can only get it once. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Unless you win. We've we've had a we've had a very abstract discussion today because we haven't even talked about John Bolton, or until I mentioned it just now, Nancy Pelosi. Um, but let's just leave that for another 
another time. I mean, there's there's so many things we could say every week, and we we would just be sad, and we and yet we're 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 sad anyway because. Boy, it's, I mean, in 2012, right after the election, The Onion had a headline that said, it was like, studies show 2012 Republican front run, presidential frontrunners to be most depressing phrase in English language. Or, <laughs> 2016 Republican frontrunners to be most depressing phrase in English language. And, you know, if only we'd known how horrible it was actually going to be. They also had an article around that time that said, um, GOP 2016 frontrunner, just giant screaming ball of rage. I was which about to say. ended up being what happened. Say. So. Yeah. On yep. that cheerful thought, everyone, you know, just go out there and act with the best care can in your lives. Just try to uh, try your best to be a good person. Look at Trump and do the opposite. And <laughs> I can't promise that that will benefit you personally in, you know, immediate in an immediate sense. But you can be happier with who you are. Good night, everyone. I left with good night, despite the fact that it is, in fact, noon here. <laughs> well, you heard the call to prayer and... Uh...